during those endless, torturous nights when you can't sleep, when you're looking at the clock and you think, God, it's still only half past two, where do your thoughts turn? Counting sheep is no use. Does anyone actually do that? And stupid relaxation techniques are absolutely no use at all if you're a deep-fried ball of panic like me. So where do your thoughts go in the deepest dark of the night when you just can't sleep? I try to think of all the different jobs I've had. I think I've had about 25 or so, and by the time I've got to the 5th or 6th call centre, I'm asleep. But sometimes my mind just won't let me. I'm sure you're the same at times. Now, a sensible person, stricken by a relentless insomnia, would just get up, make some tea, put on the Simpsons, have some ginger nuts. But maybe your bed seems too cosy and the rest of the flat just too dark and forbidding. So if you stay in bed and try and force your mind to sleep, your treacherous mind might repay you by forcing you to think of nuclear war. And it's always the same old story on those awful long nights. My thoughts always turn to asking what I would do if the bomb dropped, how I would survive. And it's a horrible, frightening topic, of course, so I thought I'd stop asking myself and ask you instead. So I put out requests on Twitter, Facebook, for listeners to tell me what their plan was uh, if the bomb had dropped. Or if the bomb does drop, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. So in this episode, I'm going to bring you some of the best responses that I got from listeners, whether they were sensible, silly, or terrifyingly realistic. This is the Atomic Hobo asking... What would you do? So I'll start with mine. I'm quite sure that I wouldn't want to live in a post-nuclear world. Of course, there's no one picture of a post-nuclear world. Scenarios range from an all-out nuclear war which prompts the extinction of all life to a functioning society battered by lawlessness, famine and the breakdown of the health service. There's also, of course, the philosophical question. Even if we all survived and if society kept trundling painfully onward, would we ever be safe again? Would anything be worth building ever again? Because if a nuclear war had happened, we would have crossed that terrible threshold, of course. We did it. We pressed the button. We unleashed nuclear war. So now, isn't anything possible? Or, to look at it another way, nothing is possible anymore. So, no, I I wouldn't want to live. I've always thought, I would just have some pills and booze to hand and I would do the necessary. Easy. But, of course, no one knows how they'll respond if and when that terrible moment comes. Indeed, I got a severe fright a couple of years ago, I think it was, when the X Factor, of all things, interrupted a performance with a mock news flash. Now, normal people watching it would have realised immediately, okay, it's false, it's part of the act, but not me. Not nervous, panicky me who spends her whole life reading about nuclear attack and danger and the imminent wailing of the siren. So for about two seconds, maybe three seconds, I thought this newsflash was real. And I thought, this is it. Now, three seconds is nothing. But when you're living it in 
terror when you think nuclear war is broken out. It drags on for one hell of a long time. And in those three achingly long seconds, my pathetic little mind whimpered at me. I don't want to die. So, yeah, all my big talk about, yeah, I'd have the booze and the pills ready. It's probably just talk. I would probably try and cling on to life, even though I didn't want to. Maybe it's just instinct. Cormac McCarthy said something like that in The Road. P.S. One of the best novels I've ever read. That um, in his post-nuclear world, no one wants to be here. And yet no one wants to leave. The whole book is about clinging to survival. Even though what you're clinging to is, is hideous. Speaking of writers, Martin Amos also had a plan for the bomb. In the intro to his book, Einstein's Monsters, he writes that he'd... If the bomb dropped, he'd have to fight his way home through the rubble and the firestorms and, quote, the warped atoms, the grovelling dead. And when he finally made it home, safely back home to his loved ones, he writes, I must find my wife and children and I must kill them. So let's see what some of the listeners had to say, what their plans were if the bomb had dropped. What would you do? Thank you firstly to everyone who responded via email, Facebook, Twitter. Some of the answers were quite funny and of course some were deadly serious. Let's start with Tim Olson, who made a really good point on the Nuclear Britain Facebook page. Tim says he'd probably flee west, uh, this is Britain, into Cornwall or Anglesey. Well, that's a really common reaction, of course, in any country, wanting to get away from the city. Cities are obviously typically the targets. Get away from the city into somewhere relatively rural and empty. But Tim reminds us of the very blunt advice in Protect and Survive, the British nuclear public information campaign of the early 80s, which said local authorities are not obliged to house or feed any refugees that come in from other areas. If you leave your home, your local authority may take it over for homeless families. And if you move, the authorities in the new place will not help you with food, accommodation or other essentials. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. So if you do flee to a supposedly safer part of the country, you'd better make sure that you're equipped to look after yourself because the local council in that nice, safe, rural area won't look after you. Of course, the idea that all the locals will be politely queuing at their town hall with requests for new housing is a bit silly, obviously. I assume this advice was just another way of controlling the population after an attack, of encouraging us to stay put. That was the official advice by the 80s in Britain. No evacuation, stay put. So I assume this was just another way of making us indeed stay put so that the roads wouldn't be crammed full of thousands and thousands of panicked refugees. If we all stay put, then the roads are clear for official use. We also hear from Ken Prescott, who was a US Marine during the Cold War. He says he was stationed at high priority military targets. My plan was, don't worry, be happy. 
And Ken's quite right. If you are stationed at a high priority military target, there's no point with a the plan. There's absolutely no point. Whatever will be, will be. That's the only approach you can take to it. Otherwise, you would probably just lose your marbles. Martin Phillips had the same plan as Tim Olson. Get out of town. Although he was more concerned with fleeing the breakdown of law and order in towns. And he's quite right. That's something which really frightens me. It's easy to imagine violence, looting, anarchy and panic in densely populated areas. And you can't any longer phone the police for help. Neither can you rely on your fellow man to act reasonably and calmly and logically. His baser instincts held in place by society. As the film Thread shows us, when the threads which hold society together snap, we're in some deep trouble. So I think what Martin maybe is hinting at there is um, one of your biggest worries after nuclear war, uh, apart from the huge list involving fallout, famine, disease, etc., is your next-door neighbour. Again on Facebook, Matt Joshua commented along the same lines. He said, I live in downtown Chicago, and surviving would be difficult. Booze and pills has always been my thought. However, let's say there's a limited launch from North Korea, for instance, and the range of their ICBMs is such that they can't hit the inner US. Many take comfort in that, but that is unfounded. The disruption to American life and economy would still be substantial. Four bombs hitting the West Coast, California especially, would cause significant disruption. Threads show it best with the interconnectedness. Matt goes on to say, I must say I noticed you're using the past tense about nuclear war. Although the threat has eased a lot as the Cold War ended, it's still there in my opinion, especially considering certain current leaders. And Matt, you're quite right, the threat is definitely still here. I just tend to lapse into the past tense because my research concentrates on the Cold War era. But um, I agree with you completely, there's no doubt the threat is still here. Uh, There's an argument to be made that it's more dangerous just now than it was during the Cold War. Because at least in the Cold War, leaders were held in check by certain rules, by certain traditions, by certain terrors, by having experienced war directly. Arguably those things have dissolved or are dissolving. But let's lighten the mood slightly. Steve Hoskins comments, Crate of champagne and party, party, party. We have another view from America, this one from Peter Bullen who commented on Twitter saying, In the 1980s I lived in Arlington, Virginia, quite close to the Pentagon. We would have sat on the front porch which faced towards Capitol Hill. Too close to survive, might as well have had a good view and be sure about things. John Dowds, who commented on Twitter, gives us a bit of humour as well. He says, My brother and I decided to start digging a shelter under a shed in the early 80s. I was about 12 at the time. Managed to get a hole about three foot deep before it filled with water. Had to fill it in, as my dad was scarier than the Russians. We also have an email from Paul Viner. I'll quote here from his email. After seeing threads and the day after, I went from thinking that survival was possible to understanding that there was very little, if any, chance of survival from either the heat, blast or fallout from a detonation nearby. My parents never had any plans at all. My dad was a realist. He just carried on day after day, life as usual. 
I often wondered why he didn't plan, like my aunt and uncle, who had a cupboard under the stairs with food, torch, radio, batteries already. He used to joke about it. I now realise why. They lived within four miles of GCHQ and a couple of miles of Gloucester city centre. My plans amounted to me raiding my parents' drinks cupboard and sitting outside waiting for the first one to arrive. We always assumed that Barclay Nuclear Power Station would be a target, as well as GCHQ and Gloucester as an urban centre. Me and my mates were going to sit down in the grass and get drunk while awaiting our end. Today, things are not much different. I live a mile from where I grew up as a child. The only things that have changed are that the nuclear power station has been decommissioned and that I can now drive. My current plans are to drive up the M5 to GCHQ and camp outside while waiting for a swift and relatively painless end. My wife is in agreement with this as the thought of dying slowly of radiation poisoning or burns, fractures etc is quite horrifying. I may take a bottle with me to speed me on my way and some pills, but if it were ever to happen, quote, the living would envy the dead. And let me read you from Bruce Armstrong's email. Um, Bruce um, is another American listener. He says, Born in 1965, I grew up in Vista, California, a small town in northern San Diego County, California. We were surrounded by prime targets. Camp Pendleton Marine Corps Base, San Onofre Nuclear Station, Miramar Naval Air Station, the Nixon compound in San Clemente was 25 miles away. If a nuclear war broke out, we planned to die. No need for pills, booze or gun. There likely would be a flash and that's it. My high school government and debate teacher, on the other hand, had built a fallout shelter in his backyard, as did my automatrist growing up. In the late 80s, I was stationed with the US Army in northern West Germany. I figured if the Soviets invaded the West, it'd quickly go nuclear, and I'd either be killed in a flash or by chemical weapons. Then Bruce finishes by saying, Nowadays, I'd either make a run for the mountains, I live in Fresno, California now, central California, or, as you mentioned, go for the pills and booze. FYI, I think we're closer now than we've been since Reagan's we begin bombing in five minutes joke. Here's a contribution from Sean Milson. Sean, um, like me, grew up in the 80s. So this is from a child's perspective, which obviously makes it sound quite sad. He says, I grew up in the 80s, so I wouldn't have had much say in what we would have done. I was about the same age as Michael from Threads. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, uh, I'd say Michael's about 10 maybe in Threads. Sean says, I did have my own plans though. He sends me a map here from his local council booklet, a map showing, you know, target areas, etc. And he says, I would see where my house is on the map and see if I would survive. I used to pore over the map again and again, checking and double checking. We also had a cupboard under the stairs in the house I grew up in. I planned to hide in the cupboard and there was an area in front of the cupboard that had no windows. So I planned to keep all my stuff there, like water and tins. I thought I'd be okay. I plan to stay there for the duration, then move out to the country. The council bunker was about a mile away, and I planned to head there. This was the bunker that was featured in the Panorama programme, If the Bomb Drops. The one that threatened to kill people who were marching on the site. Even with that booklet, it didn't sink in how final it would all be. Childhood naivety. 
uh, the panorama episode, If the Bomb Drops, uh, which Sean mentions. It's on YouTube. Absolutely brilliant. It's uh, presented by a very young, dashing Jeremy Paxman from, I think it's 1981. And he investigates the state of civil defence in the UK, what plans are being made. Basically, if you like this podcast, you, you will love this programme. And as Sean says in this email here, the council leader who'd be in charge of the bunker, in the which is featured in the documentary, speaks very plainly and very coldly. He shows no emotion at all about his obligations after a nuclear war and how he would have the right to use uh, lethal force on any rioters or looters or people who might try to break into the bunker. So yes, the authorities would be turning on their own people. It's very, very grim. But yes, get that on YouTube uh, before the BBC or someone takes it down. Now I will finish with two slightly different perspectives. One is from our listener Ian Patterson. Ian's now a psychologist, but during the Cold War he was in the Territorial Army, uh, reaching the rank of Major. He attended lots of courses in NBC, uh, Nuclear, Biological and Chemical Warfare, and became an NBC advisor to his brigade commander. Now, Ian's reply is different to most of the others I received, in that he's not quite as bleak and pessimistic about possible outcomes in a nuclear war. Uh, I'll let Ian speak for himself here. I'll quote from his email. He says, My perspective was that nuclear strikes here were not, quote, the end of the world, but they had to be coped with. We learned such basics as what the different radiations there were and what their penetrative effects and capacities were too. That led to the notions of defensive measures that could be adopted to cope with the effects of a nuclear attack. It was not anticipated that nuclear strikes in the UK would, quote, wipe out everything. Logically and scientifically speaking, there are defensive measures that can be adopted to defend oneself in the event of nuclear attack. But these depend on where it is and on what your situation at the time is. If ground zero is 15 miles away, for example, and you're upwind of it, then you have a very good chance of being okay, especially if you follow some basic principles. Uh, Let me just cut in there for a second. That's, of course, true. That's very logical. He mentions the word logically here. That is logical. My... um, response to that would be, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, would you want to live in a post-nuclear world, even one that was technically still functioning and still living? Society would surely have undergone horrific changes and perhaps we would have become a bit more savage and brutal. Uh, I'll let Ian continue. In my situation in those days, if I had been at home in rural Scotland, then I have no doubt that I and my family would have been able to survive the initial strike of a nuclear weapon many miles away. Accordingly, I had outlined plans in mind to have the resources to deal with flash and blast, followed by what was then needed to resist the effects of radiation. Bear in mind that those effects are, as you will know, of different kinds, each requiring different defensive measures. In addition, I would have ensured our possession of essential supplies of one sort or another, And again, uh, let me interrupt there, because I know that some people at home will be saying this. It might not be easy to get essential supplies, because we can assume that everyone else in the country is also trying to get those essential supplies. So would there be uh, shortages, etc., in the shops? Depends, of course, how far in advance your planning is. If you're doing it, you know, 
four minutes before the bomb, the shelves will probably be empty. If you're doing it months or weeks in advance, you may have some better luck. Um, Ian goes on to say, Indeed, and although the scale of things was vastly different then, one does need to remember and to note how the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki did not lead to the end of the world in those regions and that they are nowadays bustling communities once again. I suppose the answer to that or the response to that would be Hiroshima and Nagasaki had other cities and other countries who were able to assist them. If we had a, an all-out nuclear war just now and everyone was involved, everyone's going to be equally or almost equally as damaged and as ruined and unable to offer help. I think I've mentioned before, I read a quote somewhere saying, an all-out nuclear war, it would be, if you ask for help from another country, it would be like Dresden asking for help from Hamburg during the Second World War. They can't offer help. They're, they're just as destroyed and broken as you are. So Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yes, they are now bustling cities once again, but the atomic bombs on them were relatively small and they had other countries, other cities, other people able and willing to help them. Um, Ian goes on to say, So if some people just want to collapse and die in the face of these ideas, let alone the actuality of them, then that is entirely up to them. But, and he emphasises this part, it is not my way of dealing with things. He is right to say that it needn't necessarily be the end of the world. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, there are lots of different scenarios one is, of course, total extinction of all life on Earth. We, we know that, especially if the theory of nuclear winter is accurate. Um, so it is possible, of course, for everything to be like, uh, to be completely wiped out. On the other hand, you could have a limited nuclear exchange where certain cities or certain airports and ports are knocked out. Fallout is created, but it can be overcome. So I suppose we need to think of nuclear war or nuclear conflict as a spectrum at one end, you've got total extinction of everything. And at the other end, you've got massive destruction and fallout and upheaval and starvation. But other areas of the world are able to come to those countries' assistance. And as with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, rebuild and offer aid. So yeah, there are a lot of different scenarios. We mustn't immediately rush to the popular one which Hollywood has given us of Presidents in Moscow and Washington pressing buttons, unleashing hell, and the world is dark and poisoned forever. That's one scenario. As Ian points out, it's not the only one. And I got an email from Jacqueline Brick. She's uh, she's from America, and she says, You asked for nuclear plans, and boy howdy do I have some. I live equidistant between Philadelphia and D.C., so one would think I'd be toast if either of them gets hit. Apparently, that's not the case. Unless the Salem power plant gets hit, which is possible, I'm upwind from any fallout from both DC and Philly. Philly's winds go to the Great Lakes, and DC's go south to Virginia, or directly north, depending on the day. If the southern coast of the US gets hit, I will crumple and die. But it depends on how much fallout that generates. If it's an accidental detonation or terrorist strike, I'm probably fine for a relative value of fine. She also points out that uh, she's using the Nuke map, which I've tweeted about several times before. Uh, If you're new to it, uh, I'll put a link on Twitter. 
the nuke map, uh, you can. It's an incredible detailed piece of work by uh, the nuclear scholar Alex Wellerstein. You can type in your postcode and you can type in the size of the blast and you press go and it shows you what that nuclear bomb would do to your house, your street, your city. Uh, Jacqueline's email goes on. Um, I also have an ace in my corner. My husband has his master's in disaster science and management. We have go bags and two litres of water per person per day for two weeks in the basement, as well as non-perishables and a Faraday cage around the computers in the basement. It's the best one can do. Let's end our podcast, our podcast about horror and despair and misery with a bit of comedy. Now, I am, I called this episode, What Would You Do? And you know that way when you get something caught in your head, um, a, a tune or a line from a film or whatever? Well, I kept getting a sketch by the comedian Lemmy stuck in my head. The sketch is called, What Would You Do? And it's about a man under extreme pressure, about to crack, and then a toy snowman starts giving him evil, murderous advice. And he wonders, you know... What would you do? Anyway, I had this sketch stuck in my head when I was preparing this podcast. What would you do? And I decided to just contact Lemmy and just ask him if I could use a wee clip from it. Um, I had interviewed Lemmy previously in my past life as a TV critic. And um, after our interview, we had a chat about threads and nuclear war. So while I was asking his permission to use the clip... What would you do? I asked him... Yep, you guessed it. What would you do? And uh, Lemmy's answer was uh, very blunt and very sensible. He says, I didn't have any plan during the 80s. Nobody I knew seemed to care. There was talk of maybe painting the windows white or something, but that might have been some other boys in primary school talking about it. If I was an adult back in the 80s, I don't think I'd have bothered with the plan, because the longer you're alive, the worse it would be. Quite right. What would you do? I hope you've enjoyed the podcast this week. If you want to support it, you can chip in some money through my Patreon account. Go to patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo, where you can also get nuclear themed rewards for contributing. I also want to give a shout out to my patrons Alan Christie, Andrew Key, Angus McClellan, Ben Capper, Brian Outlaw, Claire Brennan, Colin McGee, Damian Ryan, Douglas Greenshields, Ewan McLeod, Gordy McNair, Helen McHale, Jacqueline Brick, Jonathan Abelins, Lainey Peterson, Lee Pierce, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Sarah Williams, Sean Judge, Sean Milson, Steve Sace, Wynn Grant. And if you want to contact me with any suggestions or questions about the podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, find me on Facebook at my page Nuclear Britain, or go to my website at juliemcdowell.com. Thank you again for listening, and I'll be back next week. What would you do?